EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Here it is, and it's a lovely day in the neighborhood to go inside EMS. And here he is on the EMS World Tour, heading to Dallas, Texas, as we speak, my Sancho Panza, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, what's going on? Oh, man, I'm good. So that makes you Don Quixote, right? I guess so. I mean, I, I, I'm older. Well, I have a little bit more dementia maybe than you do. I don't know. Well, yeah, that, that fits because Sancho was the, was the same one of the two, and and Don Quixote wore a chamber pot on his head as a helmet. So, yeah, that's perfect. But perfect here's, analogy. But here's <laughs> the thing that you got to remember is that everybody remembers Don Quixote. Nobody knows who Sancho Panza was. That is true. You know, uh, at Sancho, uh, Don Quixote was, was the subject of my senior thesis in high school. And I, um, I used that thing in, in college and what, as well as a research paper and made A's on it every time. So basically, what you did was is you reworked your work and you uh, just kind of repurposed it. Do you give? Do you, straight, baby. Do you regift too? Uh, I I'm not going to say that I sold that term paper to anyone because that would be dishonest. But uh, let's just say that there were there were plenty of lucrative offers. How about that, man? How about that? So. Yeah. You are on the road, heading out to world-famous Dallas, Texas, so we're going to try to keep this uh, this show a little bit uh, short. We want to make sure that we have some yeah. good recordings, good quality recordings. So, But, you know, I was as I was perusing some of the reading materials on EMS-1 yesterday, I ran across the latest from Kelly Grayson called the Anti-Axiom Axiom. And, uh, you know, it gave me a little chuckle, so I thought maybe it'd be good to chat about it because you've got some things in here that really kind of talk about, you know, the things that we shouldn't shouldn't believe in EMS. So the byline for this is, while EMS education and protocols are important, experience proves that every situation is different and nuanced. So, you know, as we talk about this, I think you bring up a really good point. One of the things that you've talked about is you've said that, you know, 50% of what we do in EMS is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. So I think this is a good time for you to kind of, let's let's give you this platform to kind of talk about it. So what's the premise of this article and why would you come up with it? Well, basically, it kind of it kind of follows that Dreyfus model of skill acquisition model that I've cited before. Uh, in that, you know, when you first start, when you're a novice practitioner, you're all about the rules and the protocols, and, and that's your Bible, and, and you have very little awareness or or critical thinking outside those rigid, strict guidelines. Uh, but as you grow uh, and learn as a provider, you realize that, that your perspective broadens, and you realize that every situation is nuanced, and that there are very few actual rules. Um and that's what the anti-axiom axiom is. It's, it means that the only axiom in EMS is that there are no axioms in EMS. 
there are very few things that are 100% true all of the time uh, and 100% rules that we should always follow. Um, and a good medic knows when to deviate from the protocol or, uh, or when he's off the page and the rules no longer apply. But I think that one of the things that happens here is you brought up a couple a couple things in that little banter you just had, and you were talking about that you know we don't have critical thinking skills when they when we come out of school, but that's because of the way that we teach the paramedics and EMTs. We teach them very linearly. Absolutely. If A happens, do B. If B happens, do C. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some of those axioms, quote unquote, that are not true. I mean, some of the things that you write here in the article is, you know, if a GCS less than eight, intubate. Uh, hold your breath while you intubate. When you need to take a breath, so does the patient. BLS before ALS. I think that these are a lot of a lot of good foundations for people to kind of work off of. So, you know, it takes us a good amount of time to gain experience to say, and, and to kind of synthesize all this stuff to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to intubate this way. I don't have to start an IV this way. Wait a minute, less than eight, intubate, is that really true? But as we think about this as a foundation, don't you think that these axioms that you put here are true? No, I don't think they're true. I think that, and the problem is, is that what we wind up doing in EMS is presumably a novice practitioner. There are three levels on that Dreyfus skill acquisition model. There's novice, experienced, and expert practitioners. And presumably... Uh, a brand spanking new EMT would be a novice practitioner, and as he grows and, and learns, uh, they become experienced practitioners, and they, they have a little more situational perception and a broader perspective outside what happens in the back of their ambulance. And then the expert practitioner has become uh, a master of pattern recognition, and the only time he has to go back to the protocols uh, and the step-by-step analysis is when he when he encounters a a novel presentation, something that's unusual uh, and a little hard to identify. But what actually happens in EMS education is that uh, instead of the expert practitioner being the three, four, five-year paramedic, what we wind up doing in paramedic school is we turn out yet another novice practitioner with an expanded skill set and a drug box. They go right back to zero because we don't really teach critical thinking skills. Uh, EMT students and EMT instructors, paramedic students and paramedic instructors, are really uncomfortable with the answer, it depends. But it does depend on a lot of times. So, you know, I I like to to quote that noted philosopher, Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, there are actually more guidelines. (laughs) There are very few laws. You know, I, I intubated a bunch of people uh, in the first couple of years of my EMS career, we had GCS less than eight. Um, very few of them really needed to be intubated. Uh, you go to a nursing home, there's wings of people with GCS less than eight. They've been breathing and managing their airways just fine for years. Uh, so there's an exception to every rule, and, and I think we need to make that point early on in EMS education uh, and teach people you know, standardized practices and, and guidelines but emphasize the fact that they are guidelines and there are exceptions to every one of them. So now as we think about some of these things that we're taught, other things that you add is never give medication to an undifferentiated abdominal pain, 
Uh, you can never go wrong by administering oxygen. I think that that one is true, that I think we need to be a little bit more conservative on how we're given oxygen and, and really how we're administering. This is one of the things that I was talking to someone about the other day as well. When we see something that says, you know, give high flow O2, 10 to 15 liters per minute via non-rebreather, that doesn't necessarily mean turn it up to 15 liters per minute. You know, it's the same thing as saying given one to four milligrams of morphine, you don't start off with four milligrams of morphine. So you need to be able to titrate that. So we need to be able to start off with the lower dose, 10 liters of oxygen, and then see how that affects the patient and then turn that up to make sure that we get them to the proper level of oxygen that they need to give. But this is any drug that we're given. So I think that there are some things that we just do because we think we need to do it and we're not using our critical thinking to say, wait a minute, did they really need 15 liters? Let me see what 10 does for them. And then you're able to document to say we were able to change the condition with 10 liters of oxygen um if we just throw it up to the maximum dose we don't know what worked but my question goes back to you is to say as we use these things as a foundation less than eight intubate bls before als which i don't think is a bad thing that bls before als because sometimes we don't need to intubate and that goes back to what you were saying in the fact of i intubated a lot of people because if you'd have used your bls skills you maybe you wouldn't have intubated that patient unless there's an instance where the ALS needs to be the first thing you practice or treat the patient, not the moniker. Everyone says that. Uh, that's code phrase for I don't know what those squiggly lines mean, but the patient looks okay right now. Um, I, I agree that you should treat the patient, not the moniker, most of the time. But there are sometimes you put a patient on the moniker, and that is the first clue that you have that something is wrong and may need intervention. And in that case, you're treating the moniker, but you're also treating the patient as well. Yeah, how many times have you run? How many? You. Yeah, how many times have you run across somebody in your career that's been in VTAC with a pulse and they have no symptoms? Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't stay asymptomatic in my experience for very long. Not very long. There's but been more than one time when someone, more than a few times when someone has had an, an ambiguous complaint, they were perfusing well. And they were breathing fine, and, and, and it was just kind of something my spider sense was tingling. And put them on the monitor and find out that, you know, they're having a STEMI. Uh, or put them on the monitor and they're trying to refuse care, and you see the signs of Wellen syndrome. And you realize that, hey, you know, if I let this guy refuse care, there's a good chance I'll be somebody else is going to be picking him up in a cardiac arrest in the next few days. Right. Um, perhaps we need to use this to influence him to go to the hospital and let him know that, that his situation is actually pretty grim. Um, but that's a, a good example of treating the monitor, not the patient, because most of those patients asymptomatic when you're checking that out. They had chest pain, um, and then the chest pain spontaneously resolved, and you do a 12-lead EKG, and the EKG doesn't look all that bad except for a few little subtle things in, in your anterior chest leads. You realize what that means. Uh, that the patient's a, a pretty significant risk for total LAD occlusion in the next few days. Well, yeah, you need to you need to make that point to the patient uh, and use that that brain that the that highly trained brain that you you got in paramedic school uh, and treat the monitor, not the patient. You know that's that's just one example of, of of all of those things that we did for so long that we were absolutely certain was beneficial didn't turn out to be so let's go ahead and think about this now so we've kind of identified the problem 
So I don't know that there's any solution to this, though, because when we talk about the way that we're treating EMTs and paramedics and we're giving them a linear education, and when we talk about them developing critical thinking skills, which truly only comes from a solid training program in your new organization or the experience that you're going to gain while you're on the, there's no way that we can get rid of these axioms. When we talk about less. Don't beat it out of. Don't beat the critical thinking skills out of them. All too many EMS training programs uh, discourage it. Inadvertently, maybe, but they discourage critical thinking. But one of the things that I think we need to focus on here is I don't think these ever really go away until we change our educational process. You know, when we talk oh, about... Oh, I agree. I agree fully. So how do we take the lack of absolute and put it into our practice when we're coming out of school. Or uh, I'll ask you the question, uh, you know, from your experience as an FTO, from your experience as a, you know, uh, from a, a clinical education standpoint, how do we now focus the new providers to help them to understand that it's not about believing these things that we're taught to believe? Well, first of all, I think we, we need more education. I've harped on this before. You've said it as well. Um, we need more education, but it needs to be more quality education, not just keeping more stuff that isn't necessarily germane to our practice uh, on there, but things that will make us a, a better, a more well-rounded evaluator of, of information um, are always helpful. Uh, so statistics classes and, and research methodology and that sort of thing, uh, those things should be necessary parts of EMS education. Because what people who are receiving that education often don't appreciate is what sacrifices and what cuts were made to the material in the interest of expediency. You know, uh, EMS textbooks, EMT textbooks are written at an 8th grade reading level, paramedics at a roughly a 10th grade reading level. Um, you have to, for lack of a better word, dumb down some of the material just in writing the textbook. And there's always the time factor in mind. Do we have enough time in our curriculum as it's written to cover this in sufficient depth and detail? And, and a lot of nuance gets, gets cut simply in due to expediency. Uh, we don't have the time to teach you how to do it. So our default mechanism is, is result, uh, resort to a, a bunch of absolutes. Um, so, yeah, the educational model has to change. Let me throw okay. something in there. When you talk about the education model has to change, I agree with you. But I think that you can change the education model with the structure of the curriculum the way that it is. You you think about people like Dan Limmer. You think about people like Artsia. I mean, these guys are changing the focus of EMS education in today's scope of teaching uh, EMT and paramedic programs. But one of the challenges that I think is out there as well is as we as we thumb our nose at the educational system in EMS right now, which I think we both agree that it needs some uh, overhaul, first thing that I think needs to be overhauled is the quality of the instructors that are teaching. Because a lot of the instructors, oh, yeah. a lot of the instructors who are in front of these classes or just regurgitating what they learned, or they're not challenging the things that they're, you know, that's in their curriculum that they need to teach to these EMTs and paramedics. So I don't know that it's as much as the education system, as much as it is the quality of the instructors that are out there that just read the PowerPoint, or don't do any preparation when it comes to teaching their lectures, or just go, or, or they're just teaching what they were taught 
10 years before. So I think that we can do a better job if we just upgraded the quality or how about this rather than upgrading the quality of the instructors how about upgrading the commitment of the instructors to developing you know to taking that curriculum that's in the can and making it better than what it looks like now oh yeah i, I agree fully I, I think most it's been my experience that most um ems instructors most nascent ems instructors when they're first starting out they got into instruction because they were strong on their psychomotor skills. Uh, very few of them uh, think, man, I'm a really good communicator. I, I can stand in front of a classroom and, and uh, articulate complex concepts and make them understandable. Uh, that's my strong suit. Very few of them do that. That's, that's one of the, that's their weak part uh, or their, the talent that they're most lacking. Uh, and sadly, not enough of them develop uh, over time. Some of them do, but that's one of the things we need to start uh, focusing on. Uh, and when I say change GMS education, um, I do think it needs to be lengthened a little bit, but maybe perhaps not as much as, as requiring a full four-year degree. Uh, I think, like you said, there's a lot of room for, for improvement within the existing time uh, that we already have if we just quit focusing on crap and start focusing on things that actually make a difference for the patient. Um, Ginger Locke, for example, uh, has, you know, her whole podcast is about this whole, the, the medic mindset. Uh, and it's about our mental processes and our thinking skills. Um, and she's big on things like cognitive offloading, you know, things that, uh, if you don't need to memorize it because you can put it on a, on a pocket guide or a, a chart or a, or a, a, a reference somewhere, why spend time uh, trying to memorize it when we can use our brain power for other things like critical thinking, problem solving, uh, and appreciating that nuance uh, in, in what it is that we do. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of things that we could probably cut and, and stick that in, in on-the-job training and focus more on our critical thinking skills. But we first got to get away from this algorithmic, approach to thinking um, that we tend to do in EMS or teach by a protocol. I'm not going to educate you. What I'm going to do is make you memorize the protocol steps and regurgitate them at the appropriate times. But, hey, that's what I think. We know what Chris thinks. We'd like to hear what you think. Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Cimolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.